So we're returning to Acts chapter 26 as we're looking at Paul's continued defense making. This is his fifth defense. So hopefully this these many, many months that we've been through the defenses of the Apostle Paul, we're able to glean a lot of uh, information with regard to pr- proper technique and with regard to how Paul was very much cognizant of the audience that he had, and he crafted his defenses, his apologetic, according to those he was speaking to, whether it's a uh, group in Lystra, whether it's before the crowd who's trying to kill him in Jerusalem, whether it's before the Sanhedrin who want to kill him, whether it's before the Roman government who would just like this whole nightmare to go away. He's got a king before him now. He's a vassal king, so he's a king that's of very little importance, really, as it relates to Roman jurisprudence. It's more of a symbol than anything else. But the key here to remember as we look at Paul's apologetic in this fourth part is the way, the masterful way in which he crafts this, arguably his greatest well-crafted defense that he makes for the gospel. And there is so much here, really. I mean, it is the more you spend time going deep in the sort of exegetical work of his defense here, the more impressed you are that this man has really given attention here And in my opinion, I believe it's because he recognizes a fellow Jew is before him that's in a high place. So the premium is high here and the potential for him to be converted, at least in settling, at least adjudicating the theological issue as Festus and Felix before him had uh, viewed this. Uh, This is just some, this is a mess theologically among the Jewish people. We, We really don't know. But he's knowing that being the expert in Judaism that Agrippa is, that he will understand the things that he talks about, the things that he mentions. So there's poignancy, there's deliberateness to how he's laying this out before the king. He has zero fear of man. He has the courage of Christ himself, the Christ who called him. And he has the wisdom that he has gained in all that he's learned through his heavy background in studying Judaism under Gamaliel as he was growing up in the faith. And now he himself is perhaps one of the greatest experts in Judaic doctrine than anyone else. And so now he stands before having been transformed by the risen Christ. He is converted now. He's been introduced to the Messiah. He's seen him. He's heard from him. He has a specific calling and direction from him. So convinced of that is he, that he does not fear any man. He understands his call. Jesus said in verse 16 of his apologetic, and we looked at that passage last week, 12 through 18, and in verse 16, Jesus saying to Paul in this conversion account, I have appeared to you for this purpose. So this is the centerpiece of his conversion story for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness. These two things wouldn't have been foreign to Paul. It would have made total sense. As we look at this passage, I want to look at it this morning. I want to read through this again. We'll pray. And then there's going to be some things that I think that we need to give our attention to before we move on to the next passage. Some things that had to be more, if even touched on at all last week before we finished up. Before we move on, I believe there's the Lord had impressed upon my heart a couple of things from this passage that we need to mine out still that's important for us to understand before we move forward. As I said, this is his magnum opus. We don't want to rush it. So let's read 12 to 18 once again this morning. In this connection, that is in his persecution of people of the way, 
on the road to Damascus, his conversion. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Father, we thank you for this testimony. We thank you for the survival of this testimony that you providentially oversaw the superintendence of our God over the scriptures inspired of you and carried forward from time to time because your word is eternal. These words are yours in the originals. These words penned by a physician named Luke in the human form, but becoming the very inspired words of God are to us to be taken seriously, looked at carefully, and lived out faithfully. Help us to do that. Help us to learn what we've assembled here today to hear from you. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So that twofold calling of witness and servant I mentioned last week as we covered this verse is continues to be our call today. That is our calling as well. We're called to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. We're called to be servants of the living God. So in Acts 1.8, you remember that point is reiterated again. So we make the transformation from the Old Testament to the New. The calling hasn't changed when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses going forward from Jerusalem, Judea, past Samaria to the outermost most points of the earth. And that's, in fact, what happened. But this wouldn't have been new to Paul. And I, I want to be sure we have in our notes why. Isaiah 43.10, who, who Paul would have been very familiar with, says as the, as the prophet is addressing Israel, as God is addressing Israel, he says through his prophet, you are my what? Witnesses. See, that's who they're supposed to be. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. It doesn't get more powerful than that or declarative in terms of what the role of the nation of Israel was to be. They're dropping the ball on this. So there's no, this isn't a new calling for Paul. This isn't a new calling that Jesus gives before his ascension in Acts 1 verse 8. This has been all through the redemptive history that Israel was a nation selected by God, chosen by God, so the world would know who God is. That's fundamentally it. That's still our calling. Our calling is the same. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians, so this is a reiteration of this in his pastoral letter, in his uh, epistle from, from uh, Paul. He said, this is how one should regard us. I, I don't know what the false apostles are, how they're trying to frame us or categorize us, but here's how you should view, view us. It's twofold. It's simple. You should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the myst mysteries of God. That's the call to be a witness. Paul, you're going to be a witness of the one you've just seen, the one you've just heard from. Those are the mysteries of God. The mysteries concealed in the Old Testament are now revealed. 
that the gospel, which was plainly spoken of in the Old Testament, as you call it, is includes all the nations. It includes all of the Gentiles. So this is continuity. There, there's nothing unchanging with God. It's the same. We go from times to times to times, but God is the same from everlasting to everlasting. He is El Olam. The God from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So this isn't new to God. Hearing this from Jesus on the Damascus Road, it made perfect sense. If the Messiah is going to show up, this is what he's going to reiterate as my fundamental call. If I knew that, here's your point. If I knew that, if I was confident of that, what would I fear standing before somebody giving them the truth of the gospel? You fear nothing. Because it is the risen Christ who lives and who lives in you, who has given you this call. Even if they take our life for the sake of the lie. He says in Isaiah 44, verse 8, Fear not, nor be afraid. I have told you from old and declared it, and you are my witnesses. This isn't just some Old Testament verse in the 700s BC. This is the eternal word of God that carries into our lap and into our hearing here this morning. If you stripped everything else away as your clear calling in life, husband, wife, parents, all of those are part of your calling. Wherever your areas of ministry and service are, all of those are part of the calling. If you said, well, if we set all that aside, what's fundamental? It's that you are a witness for Christ, the mysteries of God, that you are articulating the things that they are blind to see and outright rebellious enough to reject. You are a witness to those things. You have seen him in the spiritual sense, if you, in fact, know him. And you're his servant. You're his servant to that end. You're his servant to advance his kingdom. Kingdom in the hearts of men who he gave his life to possess. Deuteronomy 20. This all the way back to the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy 20, 3 and 4. So this is what the priests said before the battles that they're going to anticipate in the conquest when they go over. Here's what he says. Very important. Hear, O Israel. This is a form of Shema. This is listen, O Israel. Something very important is about to be stated here. Today you are drawing near the battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight. Remember that. Remember that. You don't stand alone. He stands with you. He goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. The victory in terms of forgiveness of sins, in terms of the atonement, in terms of that being a settled business theologically, the victory is there. But there are more victories to be had, aren't there? Because the lie advances, we continue to slide toward Gomorrah in our culture. I heard a great expression, somebody, an article I was reading where somebody was mentioning one thing or another that's falling apart in our culture. Name, it's a long list, isn't it? He called it waxing the toboggan. Do you all know what a toboggan is? If you live too far in the, yeah, <laughs> waxing the toboggan, the slide to make the slide toward Gomorrah even quicker. That's what these things are doing. When man turns toward Gomorrah and allows that to be open, publicly stated, with parades, with merriment, with shouts of glee and zeal, it's been waxed. The slide is fast. If we don't get ourselves equipped armed and ready to answer the lie with the truth, 
we will be defeated. And the victory is there when we understand that Christ is with us in these battles. He knows the things that he's appointed for you and I to be confronted with. So Paul can boldly stand before any of the highest levels of the Roman government all the way up to, in fact, Caesar himself, where, where he ends up, as you well know, or any zealous religious tribunal. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you might be called to stand before, whether it's a particularly uh, aggravated neighbor, neighbor or co-worker or whatever your challenge might be. But as things escalate, we need to be ready. When we look at this statement, and this is something I did want to pause to take a look further at this morning before we leave this passage. Jesus says to Paul, at the time, Saul, Saul, Saul. I I was struck by the the poignancy and, and the particularity He's calling him by name. That struck me in a new way this week. The poignancy, the particularity, the personal nature of the call of Jesus Christ that each one of us receive. We need to be aware of that. When he calls you, he calls you by name. He calls you particularly. There's there's poignancy. There's, there's There's a... a certain power affected by his calling his name twice. I imagined in my own call, for instance, Mark. Mark. That's how he calls you. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And he says it again, whom you are persecuting by your lifestyle, by how you live, incongruent to what clearly I had in mind in the perfection of the design of those who would bear my image. You're persecuting me. It's so powerful. It's like Paul, when Jesus appears to us, He already knows us intimately. We need to remember that. It's a powerful calling. Those who remain dead and blind aren't really impacted by it much at all. Calls us by name, so there's no escaping it. He's calling you. He's not calling a group. He's not just saying this to a block of people. He is speaking to you personally. And he loves you enough to get your attention by saying your name twice. There's nothing more personal or beautiful in addressing another being that has personhood by addressing them by their name. That's why it's such a challenge and such an affront when the pastor forgets your name. Right? When people remember our name, that's what we see here. That's what we see. Jesus Christ, the creator and reigning Lord of the universe, the sovereign one, El Elyon, God most high, El Shaddai, God with an immeasurable power. Adonai, our master, our beloved despotes, to whom we serve as his willing bond slaves, his servants, would speak your name. If that isn't moving to us, then we are so tragically still dead and blind in ourselves, in our sin. Each one of us, he would take the time to call in such a way.
This isn't just an experience for Paul. It's for all of us. So it's important, at least it struck me, it's important for me to remember and asking myself, is this, is this, you're persecuting me? I mean, when you read it, when you hear it, don't you want to know, wait a second, no, I, I'm saved, I know you, Lord, praise the Lord, I'm forgiven of my sins. Is there ways that I can persecute you? Have you ever thought of that? Better yet, how would it affect you if you learned that that was true? That actually a born-again believer can do things that categorically are against Christ. And when you do them, what are you kicking against? The goats. Or should we leave this... We're all about being safe here, aren't we? You're like, not really. But if we're all about being safe here, let's just leave it in the category of the unregenerate, shall we? Let's not think that there's ever a time where I could persecute the living Christ, the one who gave his life for me, who, who would ever think to live incongruent with his revealed will in my life. No, no, let's move on. Let's move on. Have we ever lived contrary to his word as believers? When Jesus finds us and calls our name in that poignantly powerful but soft and penetrating way, our eyes are open to something. Our eyes are open to the reality of things, things that we which weren't true about ourselves, things that are certainly necessarily true about the rest of the world. And now I was thinking about that concept too. Our eyes are open to truth, so immediately our perspective changes from egocentric to Christocentric. I remember that happening. Maybe some of you do as well in your testimony. Because... He not only opened my eyes to the egocentricity of my life before him and how all of the things were living for me, really. Even the things that, are, that were good things really made me feel good about whom? Myself. And then, poof, your eyes are opened not only to that, but also to... You see Christ, you see him, and you see others in a new way. Where is it that Paul says we no longer view Christ in that way? We don't view him, in other words, as a man. That's how we used to, before we knew that he was a Messiah, before we were regenerate, before we had our eyes open, before we were illuminated to the truth, he was just a man, actually a guy that kind of bothered a lot of us. No, we don't view him that way anymore. Why? Because these things are spiritually appraised. And now we see man that way. So instead of me fussing and fighting over people that hold different views than me that are contrary to the way I'd like to live or the way that I'd like things to go, I view them with pity, with, with sympathy. I hope. God help me. Because I see now. I can see. I couldn't see before. I was ready to throw down with anybody that I disagreed with. But he's let me see. More importantly, some of you know these terms from physics, your old physics class. You know what centrifugal force is. Moves out by force, by inertia. Do you know what centripetal force is? It's things that move in on itself. So we go from the, the egocentricity, the centripetal life of the egocentricity into the Christocentricity of the centripetal, where things are just moving out. Your whole perspective is moved out. That's Paul. It was all about him. And now he's died with Christ. He writes the theology of Romans chapter 6, folks. 
He's died with Christ. He's been baptized in the death of Christ. He's risen up what? A completely new creature. New set of eyes. 2 Corinthians 5.17 All things, those old things have what? Passed away. Behold, all things are now made what? New. Your eyes are open. That's what happened to Paul. Why are you persecuting me? A simple, blind, self-focused, self-serving paganism that we used to live is now connected directly to the sovereign king who just opened my eyes. What do you mean by that? It's directly your old eye. Yeah, in this sense, in the sense that he opened my eyes to what that was. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have uh, indicted myself back in those dark days. I wouldn't have said, boy, I'm just nothing but selfish. I'm just nothing but living for my own fleshly pleasures. I wouldn't even use those kind of terms. I was blind to all that. And Satan keeps it that way, right? 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He's blinded the minds of the unbeliever so they cannot see the glory of God in the beloved face of Jesus Christ. That's the key. They have to see Christ. Those sweet little babies downstairs have to see something of the Christ that it is our hope and prayer that will open their eyes and Hopefully they'll lose their egocentricity. Maybe some. And that's the hope for everyone we want to witness to as well. If somebody tried to argue me into heaven when I lived in New York City, I would have, we would have just either had an argument or I wouldn't have paid any attention and just moved on. But Christ got hold of me and opened my eyes and brought me from death to life so that I could see. He's Paul. Back to our text, Paul. This is his experience. And he wants the, his fellow Jew, this king, this debauched king from this totally dysfunctional family, to see that. They're already impressed with him from Claudius Lysias, the tribune, who had him taken down to Caesarea to now, hopefully, this entourage of higher-ups from Caesarea that have all assembled there. He's got quite an audience of people in influential places, including Roman tribunes. No man lives unto himself. Would you have ever even thought of that before you're a Christian? Well, who else am I living after? Of course I'm living after me. I, I want to make a lot of money. I want to I wanna be famous or I want to I, I be well thought of or uh, I want this, I want, I want, I want, I want. No man lives unto himself. Hebrews 4.13 is clear. The lives of every person are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's as though the Lord is saying in that verse, look, I created you whether you're saved or not. I created you and you will give an account for your life. Romans 14.7-9, For none of us lives to himself, Paul clearly writes. And none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. You see, it's an issue of possession. I'm possessed. And praise the Lord, I thank God that I am. I belong to him for his purpose, for his witness, and for his service. Everything else needs to die. When illumination comes, and I think I might have this in your notes, when illumination comes, the reality of things past and present 
come into stark focus as in the light of day. The whole issue of when the light comes, that was prophesied. We covered that more elaborate, more detail last week. The importance, the biblical importance of the symbolism of what light was. When light comes, so does sight. It puts everything, of course, in stark focus because it's daytime. I remember the days of the night. That's typically when things got going in the night. We preferred the night. We preferred to turn the music up and the lights down. We don't necessarily want to see ourselves. No mirrors. Because I can live out a fantasy there, you see? At least in so far as Satan's feeding that fallen flesh and enticing me through the world's amusements, the world's entertainments, the world's politics. Shiny little objects. Yeah, but look at this. Yeah, but look at this. His most effective tool is what? Thank you. That's his most effective tool. He's got you off on some tangent. When you are twofold to be a witness and a servant of his. That doesn't mean you quit your job. It means that you, it defines why I'm at that job. God creates sovereignly the intersections. He put me where I am. He designed, he wrote my demographic my pedigree, my background, my demographic for the day, whether married, whether not, whether I have children, whether not, whether employed, where I'm employed, and on and on and on, where I live. All of that. So the great majority of our sins are done at night because we prefer the darkness rather than what? The light. Because our deeds are what? Evil. That's John first chapter. We actually prefer that. See, in our heart of hearts, we know because we have a working conscience anyway. We don't know why, and we certainly don't know how to extricate ourselves from it, but we're not living in harmony with the way the Creator made us. Paul had to have a complete turnaround. He had it completely wrong. He was no rank pagan. This man was religious in the highest order. He knew the scriptures well. That doesn't save us. When the light shines in our hearts, all at once we can see in retrospect how unreasonable and irrational, irrational our sinful life was. It's hard for me to look back on. Maybe it is for some of you as well. You're ashamed of some of those things that took place. And I thank God that Jesus Christ despised the shame as he settled the issue of my guilt on the cross. It's irrational. It's the insanity of it. The self-destructive nature of it, it is literally killing you. If it weren't for God's restraining grace, you'd be dead already. He shows us that when the light comes. The love of God is poured into our hearts. We see how utterly selfish we were. The love of God, Romans 5, 5, shed abroad in our hearts. It pours down like a, like a great waterfall of love. And our lights and our eyes are open to what real love is. I didn't want to live anymore because I became convinced that it's all a fake. It's all a fiction. It's a, it's a, it's a lie. There is no such thing. Well, there is. And he showed me. But then again, you look at how you might have defined that word before that you loved yourself in this wicked and degenerate way, out of sync with his word and his intention for his creation. Self-destructive lives that we live. The life of Christ, now follow this. The life of Christ 
inside us now changes us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 to 8. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at what? Night. They're the walking, they're the sleepwalkers. There they are, out in the night, dead and blind to the self-destruction, dead and blind to the egocentricity of their lives. They don't know. They can't see. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Keep your wits about you. Live in the day, the daylight of what you now can see because the light has come. The morning star has arisen in your hearts and you now have eyes to see. That's who you are now. You're not people of the night anymore. For at one time you were darkness, Ephesians 5.8, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So this question of why are you whether it's possible to persecute our Lord, well, of course it is. You who have Christ in you, or so we claim, are meant to live in congruency with that life that he's revealed and is setting about to accomplish in our lives internally. It's the insanity of pursuing sin. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. This speaks to our self-inflicted wounds, doesn't it? As we know we're doing it, we're going to do it anyway, and it hurts, and it hurts worse, and worse all the time. And yet, just the insidiousness of the temptation to sin. This goad, the ox goad, or we call them cattle prods, were somewhere between six and eight feet long. I mentioned it last week. A pole usually out of, made of hardwood with a piece of iron that's sharpened to a very sharp point at the end and sometimes has a little sort of... Uh, hatchet end to it because it's not only used for moving cattle around but it's also used uh, as a weapon back then you could use it as a weapon you remember a, a judge named Shamgar in Judges chapter 3 he took out 600 Philistines with that thing it's the only place in the Bible that mentions the, the ox goat 600 this was a serious instrument of the Lord to mete out not only his justice but also to chasten his own people, I would suggest, to move them along. It hurts, doesn't it? We've known people all the way back over 30 years, back into Southern California, that who were professing believers, who we have no reason to even question that profession of faith, who have strange things happening in their life. You remember the one when we first became aware of this principle way back, this is like 1991 or something. It's a professing believer and came into work where Barbara was working at the time in Orange County. And um, he, had his, 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 he had his little granddaughter in his lap and she brought her head back and knocked his two front teeth out. And then he had what, uh, there was a fire in his house. The, the furnace caught fire or something like that. It was some, but it's bizarre and you're like, and then you learn more about the person's life. You start talking to them a little bit and you find out that this person is kicking against the goads. You bear my name. You're going to continue to hurt. That's Hebrews 12, 5 to 11. That is, I'm chastening those that I what? Love. Stop kicking against the goads. Live in congruency with what I've called you to. 
That's his point. There is, this is our self-inflicted wounds. We're kicking against the goads when we do that. There are stories back from the Great War, World War I, where there were battle-weary soldiers just total, totally had battle fatigue who were wounded, and the medics were running to help them, and they, they held them off with their bayonets. Who does that? What kind of a mind does that? Stay back. Stay back. How is that not in effect what we're doing when we live outside of his revealed will? How long do you want your life to be hard? That's what I ask myself. No man lives unto himself. If you belong to the Lord, you live unto the Lord, whether you live or whether you die. Sin that leads unto death. John writes in his first epistle, chapter 5, there is a sin that... He's writing to Christians, folks. He's writing to believers. There's something that we can participate in so long and no matter how much... It hurts to kick against those goads. We have our bayonets fixed. Some secret sin or other, who knows, but God says, I'm taking you home. Yeah, it's possible. And that's a mercy, isn't it? Thank God you belong to him anyway. That's how we are at times. We strike out against the great physician himself when he comes to heal us. The madness, the insanity of sin, the irrationality, it doesn't make any sense. It's self-destructive. We're doing it anyway. But for people who are children of the light, in other words, as mom and dad used to say, you should know better. <laughs> we do it over and over again. When the Lord was sending Paul to the Gentiles, as we learn from verse 17, verse 18 says this, to open their eyes. This is why what he's doing, he's sending Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That is my second and final topic that I want to give a little more treatment to. The time was short last week. Faith in me. What is that? It's clearly one of the most important words in the vast economy of the Christian nomenclature. Let's, we ought to know what that is. First of all, it's important to realize we're not, faith, we're not saved by faith alone. We're not saved by faith in faith alone. We're saved by the object of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. Right? It, sometimes we, we wander away from that because we talk about faith a lot and getting our faith to increase and this. And that. It's, it's the object of our faith is where our salvation comes from. Right? Someone who says, you know, I don't need doctrine. Faith is not a proposition. It's a person. They're woefully mistaken. Since you can only know the person of Jesus Christ through the propositional truths about him revealed in Scripture. So we're not divesting ourselves from the importance of what the Scriptures have to say systematically about our Christology, who he is. or our salvation. And so he says, Jesus says in John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So he knew that he wouldn't have to convince the Jews that were listening to believe in Yahweh. Believe also in me. Now you all know why he said that, right? 
Because Jesus is whom? He's equal with the Father, right? And then he says in 6 and 7, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You have to be deliberate about your rejection of who this man was speaking right now. If you choose to do that, he makes it pretty clear, doesn't he? So faith in the object, Jesus Christ, is relational, right? It's relational. Trust, faith is trust. That They're synonymous. Faith is trust, trust in that which cannot be seen. We need to understand that. Because this is our message, a message he entrusted to his witness, Paul, and one he entrusts to your witness, yours and mine. If we don't understand faith, that will not help our call to be witnesses. Jesus said to Thomas in John 20, 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. We believe in something we can't see. No, that statement's even wrong. What should I adjust? We believe in someone. Faith is personal. It's intimate. Remember? Saul. Saul. I can't can't see you. You have, to, you have to open up my heart. Give me that sight. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things what? Not seen. That's faith. 2 Corinthians 4.18 As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are what? Transient. And yet we look to the created order all the time. As I say, nothing static, that's my phrase for it. Everything is transient. Everything's changing. And yet we have this weird sort of, uh, what's the word? Uh, like we're surprised when something's changed. You mean so and so's not doing such and such anymore? You mean I can't do this anymore? You mean, this person's coming in to do that? I mean, things are always changing. Look at our culture right now. People are scrambling all over the place like ants because they're now set free after having been locked up for two years. Everything here is transient. So in the midst of the transiency of this created world that's fallen and declining and coming apart, We'd better have something that we cannot see that is fixed and unchanging. I am the Lord your God. I change not. Immutability, we call it. Thank God. So it's relational. It's trusting. My faith is trusting in someone I can't see. So 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Don't depend on things that are in this world. Relationships, health conditions, uh, your, your, your source of income, all of those things are transitory for the purposes of God himself. We're looking to the things that you cannot see. And we walk by that faith, synonymously trust. I'm going forward, Lord, with what I know to be true of what I need to do. I can't see the outcome, but you know it already. And I will trust in you. I will trust in you. Now, here's another point I want to make about faith. It's not only Trust, obviously, in things not seen, but faith is also inseparably woven together with love. And I want to prove that to you. Since every act of trust 
is a demonstration of love, isn't it? If I say I love you to my wife, but I don't trust her, do I really love her? Oh, he said that, Devin? That's right, Devin. Good job, buddy. Yeah, that's exactly right. Wow, see, the perspicuity of Scripture. Gee whiz, kids can get it. What's my excuse? Understand that those are woven together. They're, they're inextricably woven together. You can't separate them. You can't say, I love you, if you don't trust the object of your love. That's not loving them. And it's the same in our faith. When someone says, I believe you, I trust you, that's a profound affirmation of your love for that person, isn't it? I trust you. That's what Jesus wants us to say to him. Faith, in Galatians 5, 6, faith is working through love. It's the outworking of our faith is love. We, we prove that we love because we have faith, which is trust. You see? 1 Peter 1.8, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, yet you believe in him and you're filled with the rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's how. Because I love him by my unwavering faith in him, my trust in him. You can't really trust, not 100%, anything on this transitory planet. Because worse yet, it's fallen. We're all fallen. Where's Grandpa? He was the only person I could trust. He's gone. He's gone now. Where's my dad? Where's my dad? He's gone. He's gone. Is that mocking us in the time of our grief? No, it's a reminder. Don't put too much Hope in something transitory. It saves you heartache. Faith or trust is an act of the will and the understanding. Just, uh, you know, I just don't trust. I, I wish I felt like trusting or I wish I felt like I had faith. It's an act of your will. It's a fact to be affirmed, not a feeling to be felt. It's I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust Christ. And see, I'm giving you the things that I believe biblically are Paul's various statements in different epistles that bear out how he's able to stand the way he stands before the people that the vast majority want him dead and have the power to do that. If they can get permission from the procurator, they will. But he stands there fully composed. How? This is how. This is how. I want that. Belief is often mischaracterized as a work of man who believes, right? And then God rewards the man for that marvelous act of his decision to believe. That's not biblically correct. It's not biblically accurate. If it were up, to us unilaterally to choose Christ and turn from ourselves as God in our life, how long do you think God would have to wait? A long time, right? A long time. Faith is, is given to a person who has been born from above. You want the earliest part of this theology, read John 3, where Jesus is dealing with Nicodemus, trying to get that fundamental, necessary aspect into his thinking. Nicodemus, you are the teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things. You have to be born from above. We've worn out the expression born again. 
So another faithful rendering of that statement is born from above. And that, that helps me because it's like nothing's going to happen unless God makes us born from above. Faith comes from God. It's a gift. Regeneration is a work he has to do. He has to turn the lights on. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't even know that I should want that. Yeah? Who tells me that I should want that when I'm doing all the things that I want to do in my life? No, you should really want to give up your life and die to yourself and move away from all those things you take pleasure in. Um, can I get back to you? Because I'm not feeling it right now. No, he's got to take his divine ox goad and hit you on the kneecaps if you're as stubborn as I am. Hit me on the kneecaps until I finally go down and say, enough. Have mercy, God. Who are you? Who are you? And what do you want with me? Leave me alone in my misery. Your misery, your chosen life is making you miserable? Think about that, Mark. Think about that. And watch what I do. Watch what I can do. And believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. And that not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. This measure of faith we've all been apportioned as a gift from God. Not the result of works. You didn't get clever one day or so hurt you thought you would get your life saved by agreeing with a set of facts about who Jesus is. Not the result of works so that no one would boast, so he knows of our pride. That's why we spend our Sunday mornings talking about it. We're gluttons for punishment. Romans 12, 3. Listen to this. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to think of himself, not to think of himself, rather, more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to what? The measure of faith that God has assigned. Don't fuss and fret as though faith is something unilaterally generated by you. Why, well, I got to trust Him, don't I? Yes. Faith is received by God, not generated from man. Or you've got one serious works oriented gospel that you're depending on. And that way, the glory belongs to whom? There was absolutely nothing in me that could generate anything that made any biblical sense. He had to turn the lights on and give me these things. Isn't that what a loving father does? He gives you the things that you need. He is a God who is rich in mercy and great is his love which which he loved us, though we were dead and blind in our sins, he made us alive in Christ. For it is by grace you are saved. Not of yourself. It's not generated by you. We're saved not by the merits of man, but solely by the merits of Christ. His life, his perfections, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his intercession, it's all his. Like faith, salvation is a gift. It's the greatest gift ever given to a fallen mankind that lives as enemies of God. Faith does not save us. It is Christ who saves us through faith. Christian faith is more than facts, formality, or feelings. When if Wrap up quickly here. Some who claim to be, to be Christian possess a shallow or even an incomplete view or understanding of the Christian faith. It's more than facts, formality, or feelings. Number one, some view Christianity as an intellectual pursuit that leads to assent to a set of facts about Christ, which panders to our what? Pride. If that's what you're depending on, if that's how you view Christianity. Secondly, some verify their Christianity by obeying and performing the formalities of the faith. 
It's their obedience that defines their faith. Now, obedience is important. We'll get to that in the next verse. Actually, verse 19, I was not disobedient, Paul says. We're going to look at that next week. But when you're measuring your Christian faith on that alone, you're in trouble, aren't you? Which, by the way, causes them to view others with the same sort of legalistic, formal lens that they inflict on their own lives. Counting, measuring, and weighing. Counting, measuring, and weighing everything in their life. And they carry that burden like those cords we talked about last time. I'm failing here. I'm failing there. Not understanding what grace is. Not understanding what the living Christ inside you means. He's alive. He's alive. In you who believe. What do we make of it? We're reductionists, aren't we? Sometimes in our Christianity, it's not measured by that lest we become legalistic and judgmental and inflict that on people that love us, looking at the ways that they're not measuring up, thinking it's our duty to say something because, by George, if I've got to carry these stone tablets on my back, (laughs) right? You're going to obey them yourself. Three, some validate their Christianity by how they feel. Oh, this is, this is one of the saddest cases. There's whole churches that are built on that, aren't there? And, uh, it's all experiential. Oh, you need to come to our church. It's awesome. Why? Oh, man. It's just, okay, you got to do better than that. How do you define what good is? And, and I mean, I'm, it sounds like I should be happy for you, and I want to be. So what is it? Oh, we've got this band and we've got oh the speaker i mean he's just oh wow your speaker is dead to himself he's dead if you don't see the greatness of your god from this pulpit i've not only failed i've offended it's not a feeling to be felt it's a fact to be affirmed It's a fact that should be transformational in my life. True Christian faith is the life of God in the soul of man through the union with Jesus Christ. There it is. Do you know how much radically transformed we would be if we all lived that way? It is the life of Christ in us by virtue of our union with him. This life belongs to Him. We are partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4. For in Him we live and move and have our being, Acts 17, verse 28. Let Let these verses wash over you for a moment. Understand who inhabits you. Understand who has full possession and title to your life, who lives in you. And you'll avoid every one of those three that we went over in the list. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith. There it is. Trust. Belief. By faith Not in faith itself, the period isn't on that verse. By faith in the Son of God who loved me. You see how relational it is. Do you see how intimate? Do you see how glorious it is? Do you see how beautiful it is? That's the life you've been given. And there's one who doesn't want you to see that. He doesn't want you to. Because the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ will effervesce from your life. He's alive in you. He's alive. Wake up, O oh, sleeper, be sober. The days are evil. Understand what the will of the Lord is and walk ye therein. Your life is his, the divine life that is surging. It's, it's, it's coursing through our veins. It's his. So we love going into our devotionals. We love 
hearing his word taught. We love getting together as men and as women in our Bible studies to talk about the things of the Lord. What does that resonate with? It resonates with the Christ that's in you. It's a person. Capital P, it's a person. And what do you reduce your life to? Oh, what we make of it. Colossians 2, 9 to 10. Listen to this. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then it says this. And you have been filled in him. Past tense. Indicative. I don't have to go to another service to get a special falling of the Holy Spirit. I don't have to have that battery recharged. I don't have to go get plugged in. You simply need to acknowledge it. You need to trust that you walk by faith and not by sight. You need to understand the relational communion of this relationship that you have with him. You need to love him, which includes trust, and next week we'll see, includes obedience. You've been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I guess I cited those out of order. So we no longer respond to externals. Let's. Let's just finish up here. Formalities, facts, lists. We are simply made alive in Jesus Christ. We believe, and so we speak. We believe, and so we live. Our life belongs to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these truths. I know, Lord, in, in any house of this size, there is someone who doesn't, isn't familiar with these concepts. But they could know them in a moment. Were they to believe, if you, O oh Lord, were pleased to open their eyes to the truth, and their need. Show them who they really are in their heart of hearts. Show them their need for a Savior of their sins, for forgiveness, O Lord. And then come, come and dwell in them. Show them this, this new life, the new creature that they could be if they would allow you to hold sway over their hearts, that that would be your home, O oh Lord, your throne. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.